Hi everybody, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. An exciting announcement before we get going with the episode proper. Chris and I are doing some live podcast recordings at the Barbican Centre in London uh, to coincide with their RSC production of My Neighbour Totoro. Tickets for My Neighbour Totoro have all sold out. Uh, you cannot get them anywhere in London. We're all trying. But you can come and see us talk about all things Ghibli, magical, fantastical, uh, animated, you know, the usual shtick, really. But we'll be doing it live at the Barbican. The shows are taking place on the 10th and the 22nd of December. And Chris and I are in the process of sorting out some really, really great guests to join us live there. Tickets available on the Barbican website. That's barbican.org.uk. Easiest thing to do is just search fantasy animation when you get there. You'll see them pop up straight away. Buy your tickets now. £8. £8. That's like a, what, a, a craft beer in a trendy pub. So for £8, come on down. Barbican.org.uk. We'll see you there. Listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Mad Mardigan Sergeant. And I am Chris Brushtail Possum Holiday. <laughs> uh, we are doing Willow this week, Chris, and I am very, very excited. I know. I, I feel know. I'm um, fulfilling a pledge to my eight-year-old self and uh, my cousins, who I used to watch this with um, at my grand's, uh, sadly no longer with us. So I am uh, very excited that all that sitting around I did as a young child is finally going to pay off in some kind of professional capacity. Yeah, sure. Uh, I feel validated, I feel excited, I feel Proustian, having just watched the film. Um, so I'm very excited, but luckily, to bring me down, I've got Chris, I've never seen anything with a dragon in holiday next to me. So yes. uh, how are you feeling <clears throat> having just watched the film? So I, I, I saw the film for the first time. Not only did I didn't see the film for the first time about four hours ago, yeah. and I said this to you when we sat down to watch it, in my mind, Labyrinth, Legend, and Willow are the same film yes. in some form. And I think that's maybe Val Kilmer's proximity to Tom Cruise rather than any actual overlaps between the films. Sure. So I, I've, I've, my first note is Legends, and my, second, or my final note is Conan Vibes. Okay. So that's an exciting journey I'm, I'm willing to go on with you that's as... as uh, Delighted, delighted to take um, you on it. And so, uh, yeah, and of course, you know, this is this is industrial light and magic. It's practical effects with a bit of digital animation, and I'm interested in actually George Lucas's formative relationship, and he was exec producer on Willow. George Lucas's relationship to to something like the Pixar studio, which we tend to think about in terms of its origin story as connected to Steve Jobs, but um, myself and a, and a colleague, and a, a previous guest on the podcast, Chris Pallant, have just written something about the importance of Lucas to thinking about histories of Pixar. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about visual effects and, and digital morphing and um, and uh, relationships to Gulliver's Travels. So, Sure, I actually wrote that down too. Yeah, Excellent. I, 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 well, I think um, high fantasy films... Any decent one worth their salt uh, will start with a lovely prologue. Hopefully as impenetrable the better. So let's try one of them ourselves. It sounds like it fits within the story of VFX and animation in a yeah, kind of yeah. crossroads in that we have 
uh, we have VFX being used in this movie. We have um, ILM, which is obviously a really important digital effects house, or will be soon. But also, this is quite a practical special effects yeah. heavy movie in many yeah. ways, shape or form. Um, and and so we so I guess are you saying that this is kind of liminal in that respect? It's it's sitting on it's not Jurassic Park, but we're not uh, in Harryhausen world anymore either. Yes, this is a couple of years after Pixar have made Luxo Junior, so their first. Under the Pixar banner, I would say there are a couple of others sort of floating around test test footage and um, the Adventures of Andre and Wally B, which is John Lasseter's 1984 test for digital um, digital animation and, and is credited to the Computer Graphics Lab, which I will talk about in relation to, to ILM. But this is 1988, so this is yeah a couple of years after Luxo Junior. So people have seen digital effects. It's um, the year before The Abyss as well, which is sure. a very famous digital effects, using the morph, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and this has the first digital morph go. in probably... If someone's going to write in and tell me that there's one in some sort of experimental work or, or test work, but this is the first one in a mainstream you know, Hollywood feature. Yes. So uh, okay. we'll, we'll come to talk about that. So, so I guess it's, it's released in 1988 is yes. It's a, it's a, just an, you know, the eighties is really interesting. You know, there are many scholars um, who have written on the eighties as this really important VF period for, for the transition from special effects, which we generally can consider or are generally conceived to be practical mm -hmm. to visual effects, VFX, which are more digital by, by nature. So the eighties, of course, important in this film. Yeah. Having, having didn't know much about it. This is perfectly fit. It, it's also a very important decade for fantasy, Chris, yeah. because um, the eighties is the the kind of the the period of I'd say most amounts of formal and aesthetic experimentation in the world of fantasy storytelling. Uh, lots of things are happening at this one moment. We've got the sort of um, the, the 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 popularity or the mainstreamizing of of the Tolkien esque fantasy. So uh, Lord of the Rings comes out in the 1950s. Um, the mid centuries that for or, or the decades that follow see a slow rise in this kind of literature. It's become a massive thing. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons exists now. There are computer games like um, Ultima coming out that are that are aimed at this kind of crowd, and we see a shift in the rhetoric of fantasy storytelling from what um, we might call like wonder films or special effects heavy kind of Mary Poppins-esque films where where magic is kind of part of the the, the narrativized uh, storytelling, right? We have, we've, you've mentioned this quite a lot where we talk a lot when we talk about films like Mary Poppins about lots of characters looking at things thinking how magical they are. Here we have a story set in a quote-unquote magic world which fits much more comfortably within the world of the blockbuster, within the world of kind of the spectacular realm um, or the spectacular frontier, as Jeff, uh, I think Jeff King phrases it as what, you know, what blockbusters do is present a, a frontier realm of spectacle for us to ent in, enter into. Well, fantasy does that in, in spades because the frontier realm is the alternative world. So you're right to cite Conan, that's at the beginning of the decade. Um, you're right to cite Legend, that's in the middle of the decade. And this film is an interesting one in that it's... Uh, its perceived failure kickstarts a sort of right. decade of um, of of high fantasy being kind of blacklisted by Hollywood and doesn't really return until Lord of the Rings in 2001. So Willow is directly at fault, but also um, part of the of the DNA of Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Oh well, I was going to say uh, Bilbo, Willow. Yes. I mean, come on. Come on well, now. well, sure, but I mean that's that. I would say, in fairness, that's that's Lucas riffing on. Yeah, Tolkien. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I think the the relation. This is maybe 
part of the, the Lord of the Ringsness of it is that yes, uh, Lucas is riffing and, and Ron Howard is is mm-hmm. riffing on some of the the Lord of the Rings mythology and original um, kind of source material. Equally, I was struck by this for Willow's use of location shooting and particularly New Zealand yep. and the big big. Um, if you've been to New Zealand, anywhere around New Zealand, they will talk about Lord of the Rings and and sort of tourist. It's a tourist centre, a mecca for for people who are interested in, in Lord of the Rings. What the world of Lord of the Rings and the tangibility of the the world of Lord of the Rings. So I was kind of struck by how this film, also filmed partly in New Zealand, mm-hmm. sort of sets up. It both gives from Tolkien and gives back to Tolkien in a really interesting way. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's an, another way we can see this film as a kind of liminal liminal text in that it's 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 sitting right on the cusp of one kind of fantasy storytelling and setting up another one uh, yes. to come. So it's it's very important in that respect. Um, it's also important because people have seen it. People of our generation have seen this movie and think of it very fondly. And there's a very interesting article to be written that I'm not going to write, so someone out there, please go and do it, um, about the way in which a certain loose canon of story, like legend, like the never-ending story, <laughs> like said, the Dark Crystal. Well, you said loose canon. Oh, right, yeah, not uh, in the kind of Mad Mardigan sense yeah, of the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I've always thought Alex is a loose canon on this podcast. Sure, sure, well, living up to that, you know, a sort of loose canonical set of movies like the dark crystal <laughs> labyrinth legend that that people of our generation have seen usually on vhs usually sort of in odd situations where they didn't really know what the film was and all of these films are remembered very fondly and almost all of them did very badly or at least very mediocre at the 1980s box office and i think this is the interesting thing Another thing that causes the rebirth of fantasy sort of in the 21st century is that people think fantasy is a lot more important to Hollywood's finances because of this kind of phenomenon than it actually is. All of these films are essentially a testing ground for for producers to go, well, sci-fi seems to be working and action-adventure seems to be working. Can we make... Horror seems to be working. Can we make fantasy work at the same time? level of spectacle and epic and by 1990 they kind of thought the, the definitive answer was no so um, so there's it, a weird nost- so there's a nostalgia a cultural nostalgia yes. for a group of films that industrially economically commercially critically perhaps didn't do that well mm-hmm. hook hooks another one hooks an, another good example yeah so that's 91 mm-hmm. so we're around the similar sort of period to this yeah 88 um 91 um so so that nostalgia has in some way created the illusion of importance to Hollywood's financial history to the point where we have, you know, Willow, we have an upcoming, is it a sequel? Yeah, sequel to Willow, television series, to which this podcast will hopefully... A Netflix special, yes, absolutely. And same with, I mean, I can't remember about The Dark Crystal, but I'm just, uh, is there a... The Dark Crystal also has had a origin... Netflix series yeah. that came out a couple of years ago. Very interesting one, actually. So so are we saying, or are you saying that, that that nostalgia has in some way co-opted the kind of economic or the business side of the films and, and somehow, I wonder if it's a generational thing, that people that were a certain age in 1988 are now 30 years uh-huh. older 
And so they're maybe in a position to start making stuff. And what mm. do they make? Well, of course, they're going to make stuff from their childhood. I think there's something to do with that. I'd like to know how it all happened. But there is something to do with that. There are also movies that are interesting. They're big, they're big budget. And they have this kind of epic quality to them. And this meticulous quality to them. So they seem like they should be important. You know, these aren't kind of ropey B movies. These no, are big no, no, budget no. movies being made here. And they're all very esoteric and very weird. And so there's that kind of push and pull of discovering these films when you're a kid, seeing how well crafted and how well made they were, and yet how weird they are, often some of them. Yeah. I'd say actually Willow is, is a pretty mainstream example of this. The legends and the dark crystals of this world are far more kind of odd in their tone. And just thinking, what what exists in the world if this exists? If this sort of stuff exists? And, and an assumption that these films were all very well received at the time. And actually that isn't true either. Willow, open to, to mixed to middling reviews. Hook, open to very negative reviews and now is looked upon very fondly by by this generation. It's it's a. would love to know how it all happened. It's something to do with VHS distribution, um, but I don't know exactly what it is. And as I say, someone out there, because it isn't going to be me, uh, may write this article and send it to me, and I'll be delighted to read it. Well, and let's let's do a podcast instead yeah, and talk yeah, cool. about Willow. Right. So Willow, it is a dark age. Something about something. Queen Bad Morda. Um, the evil tyrant ruler of this of this realm that we're we're being introduced to um, hears about a prophecy. Uh, the prophecy is that a child that is born with a certain birthmark will bring about her downfall in a stable with uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a carpenter and a young virgin. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And then so she she decides to banish. No, not banish. She decides to kill all newborn children that bear this mark. She gathers all the pregnant women in the land to kind of her dungeons. Um, yet one slips through the crack. Um, this young child who, as you say, is born in a kind of dungeon stable, uh, prophesied child, the evil ruler trying to kill them before they're even born, and then put on a bed of reeds and pushed down the river. Uh, so there's some Moses going on. There's some uh, Jesus going on. There's some... There's some old embedded folkloric structures, and Lucas is obsessed with this sort of stuff. Because remember, this is Lucas, the guy that's read Joseph Campbell's um, A Hero of a Thousand Faces. So it's not a coincidence that basically what we're getting here is Lord of the Rings with a sprinkling of sort of Bible and, 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 and classic folklore beats. Yeah. But the setup is this child gets pushed down the river and then land. Where does she land, Chris? In the village of Willow Uffgood. A, a Nelvin who isn't a hobbit um, uh, and a sort of, of um, a land of, of, of small people who live in this world uh, far away from the humans or daikinis as they are referred to um, and Willow is therefore entrusted with the, um, with the responsibility of looking after this child and, and, and finding uh, how we can keep her alive and safe in this cruel, cruel world, and adventure ensues. So we begin in this kind of village of Nelvin. Should we talk about that? Yeah, so uh, it, it's an interesting, <laughs> because <laughs> it's difficult, to, well, this, you know, the, 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 it's difficult to talk about given that the film is quite reflexive and quite, reflexive and quite open about the distinction between quote-unquote little people mm -hmm. and um, uh, tall people. So you have the Daikini, who are the tall people, yeah. who um, giants who live very far away, as yeah, they're described but by not, Willow, but not giants insofar as or the casting um, uh, of of the villagers of, of Nelwyn are are sort of um, 
positioned as a space where you know the, the inhabitants have their own rituals, their own customs, they have festivals, but they are all. I remember reading about the the film just before we started about the casting hall for a, a number of actors and actresses, and very eminent actors and actresses mm. um, who suffer from dwarfism. So uh, the the cast list of Willow features a lot of um, actors and, and actors, actresses and performers that have gone on to star in other kinds of fantasy films, interestingly. Sure. But um, yeah, it, as well it, as Billy Barty, who was the, as the sort of not Gandalf High Eldwin figure, who's the sort of wizard of the village. Yeah, and Billy Barty's sort of a huge figure in in in, in disabled um, actors' rights. He's starred yeah. in a lot of these kind of movies. He's in Masters of the Universe as well. Um, Kenny they, ba- Kenny Baker allegedly in an, an, an a cameo. Role, right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I believe Bam Billy Barty set up the Little People of America organization um, as well as a sort of um, activist rights campaigning for for um, for people who suffer from dwarfism. So, yes, that is an interesting moment, and I think this is going to be a classic two steps forward, one step back problem, uh, or or one step forward, two step backs problem. Maybe that's what we can decide here as we debate this. In the at the time. Um, and and subsequently, that's been seen as a very interesting moment in that I think Willow broke the record for the number of of, of actors with dwarfism yep. that were hired in the movie. Um, it was seen as this kind of really revolutionary moment for many actors who who were struggling to get parts in Hollywood um, that were suddenly given you know high profile speaking roles. I mean, the the main character Willow is played by or very famously by. Um, Warwick Davis, who had starred as an Ewok in uh, Return of the Jedi um, as, a, as a small child, and, and now here he is given his leading role. So I guess ov- the obvious question is, um, it's not a question with a particularly, the question isn't a yes or no, but the obvious, the obvious question is, is how do we feel looking back on this casting choice <laughs> now? Because obviously there's a problematic going on here in that on the one hand, it's great to see so much representation for disabled actors. On the other hand, their disability is, of course, coded as this kind of magical, they're all Nelvin creatures, aren't they? So, yes, yes discuss. Debate and discuss, Chris. Well, there are, I suppose a couple of things. Is, is first, Lucas himself said that a lot of his films are about the little guy against the system. Yes. And it, it became a sort of literalised, figurative interpretation of that idea. So... Well, it was it's the hobbits in Lord of the Rings. So yeah. let's, let's not dignify that with much more thought. <laughs> but I that. think the, the the sort of problem is that the way that the film sets up the the Nelwyn community against a sort of heroic the heroic masculinity embodied by Val Kilmer, who essentially sure. sort of does save the day, or, or maybe he doesn't save the day, but sort of neither does Warwick Davis really. I think He's, Warwick Davis does save the day. No, I disagree just, with you on that. He just is well. He does a little bit of sleight of hand towards the end with the child. Um, replicating a trick he's done earlier with the with a pig. Yes. But essentially, the 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 villain um, Bav Morda ends up sort of killing herself. Really. Killing. Um, no. Okay, well, we're jumping to the ending. But spoiler alert. But, but killing she herself dies. because of the despair brought on because she thinks Willow has successfully managed to save the child through some sort of magic trick. Yes. Let's, let's not. Let's. Let, we'll get to the ending and have that debate when we get there. But let's. let's I think the, the the point to dwell on right now is is you're right. There is a very traditional white male heroic masculinity that is also valorized and celebrated in the film. Played this Mad Mardigan character played by Val Kilmer, who is essentially what a kind of wandering vagabond knight. 
yes, who, the greatest who, swordsman in the land, who serves no master, who uh, Willow meets on his quest. He's and, a loose cannon. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he, he is a loose cannon. You know, who? Yeah, Willow meets on his quest and sort of goes along with him and, and basically provides the brawn, doesn't he? I think there's a there's a you know there's a bit where they even says like we need you, we need your help, we need you to save yeah, her, because, take us because you're ten times yes, bigger than me, stupid. Yes. So of course, um, of course, it's it's sort of tricky with regards to this knife edge upon which the film sits, which is. Um, it's great to have a, 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 an actor with dwarfism in the lead role of a blockbuster Hollywood film in the 1980s. But it is also problematic in the way that the community is set up as this sort of rooted in magic. And, and also, I wonder whether there's their, their exceptionalism is sort of mitigated somewhat by another community of sort of even smaller fairies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very tricky to... To, so the film is doing some interesting things with scale, but I don't know. It's, it is tricky that you have the, the community, which is founded on a very... I, I wrote down kind of folkloric, the sort of unnervingness of their magic and mm -hmm. their community with their quote-unquote backwards traditions. Mm -hmm. They live in the middle of the woods. Again, are they backwards? Why are they backwards? No, as in like the back, as in the woods, the, oh, the they, space. They literally in the live in the back woods. of the woods, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, which is often, you know, a lot of sort but, of... But their around. magic is not... Is The magic is what sets them... You know, it, it's their... their, their actually... His ability, because so in this community there's this wizard figure played by Billy Barty, the, the, the high old one, who's a sort of yes yeah, substitute Gandalf, and and Willow wants to become his next apprentice, um, so he's kind of very interested in magic, and he is the only character in the film that is remotely interested in magic. Um, that Mad Mardigan and all, uh, well, other than yep. the evil Queen Bad Morda, um, Mad Mardigan, these figures who represent a kind of yeah physicalized, uh, heroic sword wielding masculinity they they don't have that that dynamic they they're not they're not interested in well, that world well they they are they are because they all gather around and applaud very mightily when willow performs a few kind of magic tricks so even though they are not they do not display magic insofar as they aren't able to cast spells in the way that Willow ultimately is and sort of able to kind of quote quote save the day that it is framed as a community even though they are not magic people sorry I sorry I meant like Mad Monaghan people like that that you're right the ki the, 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 the Nelwyn com community. community are very interesting that's my point actually the Nelwins yeah. and this, this might not be a good thing but the Nelwins no, are more is. tapped into magic yes, than, than the human community that exists, the Daikinis that exist far away. But that's a process of othering that. That's mm -hmm. part. That's yeah. the. That's the sort of. That's the issue that that they they are uh, they are othered through their relationship to the supernatural because the only other the only other um, tall people that the film codes as as connected to magic are quite clearly the villains. Um, or the villain, let's say the main, the main villain. Well, so and Finn Rizal, this 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 wizard who um, only yeah, but she only appears as human for about ten minutes at the end. Fine, but she's in the movie yes. for a considerable amount as various other animals. I feel <laughs> like if people listening to this have not seen the no. movie, might yeah. want to go and watch it. But yeah, these are all facts, um, yeah. at least within the context. We of might, the film. we might slip in a thing that's untrue and let listeners figure out which, what it is. You mentioned exceptionalism. I something struck me watching it this time, which is comparing. Um, the comparing the Nelwins to the Hobbits, which is a slightly boring exercise, and I'm not doing it to kind of slate Lucas for 
not being that creative in his thought because this is not just him that does this. This is, this is a, a whole industry is based on people writing the Lord of the Rings again, but with slightly different characters. So it's okay. not it's not just a Lucas thing. But but comparing them does start to highlight some of the differences, and the differences are quite interesting. In that, in the Willow, so the whole point of the you know the little the little person come good, isn't it? Is this kind of narrative, and the, the whole and you know the Lord of the Rings is interested in this. Um, Willow becomes interested in this. The idea that the, the the hero of the story, the person charged with the almighty powerful quest to defeat these things, are, is the smallest of us all, rather than Mad Modigan isn't the chosen one. No, Willow is the chosen one. In the same way, that Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, the, ki- the, the the forgotten king of Gondor, isn't. Uh, the person that's supposed to save the day, it's Frodo, Baggins, and Sam. So the difference that I did notice this is that Willow is coded as an exceptional Nelwyn within the community of Nelwins. Yes, yes. Right? There's a moment, isn't it, where Billy Barty's character says to him, you know, you, you, your only problem is you lack faith in yourself, and if you, if you had faith in yourself, you have the power to be um, an all-powerful wizard. Um, so Willow is coded as an exceptional figure. Yes. Um, in a way that Frodo isn't. Frodo is not exceptional, at least not in the novels. In the, in the films, there's a certain push towards that, but it's only emphasizing bits of the novels. In, in Lord of the Rings, Frodo is a pretty unexceptional figure. Um, you know, he, he, there's a good old couple of chapters in Lord of the Rings where Frodo likes sorts about selling his equipment and, and making sure his house is sold and his estate is all in order before he leaves the Shire. Like, Willow is uh, Willow is exceptional in the way that Frodo isn't, and I think that's very interesting because the film is is kind of fusing this Lord of the Rings f- folklore esque narrative with a kind of late seventies, early eighties Spielberg, Lucas, Manchild, Reagan esque phenomenon going on. So essentially, the film. Um, is celebrating kind of you know the, the self-made the self-made man right the self-made wizard um, because ultimately what the film celebrates and what 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 saves what saves the day is Willow's wit ingenuity and 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 response in a crisis mm-hmm. um, not some god-given right given to him it's not his status as anything it's 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 his self-made individualism so yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting note because actually Willow is ex- Willow's exceptional the film makes that point over and over over again. So is that part of where the film is is perhaps a little bit more progressive in that yes it others the community the Nelwyn community through their proximity to magic and interest in magic and interest in, in the sort of potential for, for supernatural. And, and this happens very early on in the, um, as I said, the sort of community, the customs, the rituals that take place as part of this festival. And Willow is doing a performance, a sort of sleight of hand magic performance where he tries to make things disappear and so forth. Um, so we could say that the whole community is othered in that sense, but maybe his exceptionism is is to, to try and destabilize that. That he's actually he's not exceptional because of his his sort of othered physicality. Let's let's say mm. he's he's exceptional for a, a whole number of character driven yes. character driven qualities that that you can say tap into the the era in which well, the film is produced. Because is that progressive. Um, I would I would argue I, I, this is a very difficult thorny problem, but I would argue that it's actually well it, it's it's enabling, but it's pretty it's pretty right it's pretty right it's right wing politics. It's pretty the oh myth, uh, the yes myth, that's, the myth yes. of the individual. Well, because you know it, yeah. in a way I prefer the story to be hey look embedded class structures and societal issues matter and there isn't an exceptional 
figure in this. Because you, you think... Like, it... That's what... Frodo, for all the problems yeah. of Tolkien, Frodo is just sort of... It, there's a sense in it that he's just the person that's burdened with this problem. Like, he's just... In the same way Willow, that you know, the, the, the kid happens to wash up on his shore... For Frodo, uh, for Frodo, the ring happens to come to him. And there's that whole thing in Lord of the Rings about, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Well, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for you to decide. All you can do is decide what to do with the time that it's given you. And, and this idea that the, the, the carrying the ring is a burden that Frodo shouldn't have to bear, and yet he has to bear it. So so he's, sort of, he's not exceptional. He's, he's every day. He's, he's, he's just a hobbit. So the, fi- the, the, the film... Willow, through- Willow isn't just an Elvlin. Yeah. But the fil- so the film finds the community by accident, i.e. that the baby washes up, having floated down the river on a bed of reeds, mm. has, has arrived at this community. So their, their relationship to the, to the sort of baby... And actually, Willow is one of the first people to say, do not get attached to this young child. Yes. Like, do not fall in love with this child. But then the High Aldwin, who is the... Well, the, the sort of um, village leader. So that's Barty, yes? Yeah, Billy Barty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, orders that the baby must be returned to a, a, um, a tall person... And so basically Willow and this group of volunteers. A sort of fellowship, if you will. A fellowship um, who very quickly sort of disappear because it's not really about... So that fits into your your sort of right-wing politics narrative with regards to the community is very... And the community and the fellowship has actually got rid of quite quickly. And it becomes about Willow's exceptionality. Which is a shame because just on a basic level, like that, you know, talking about like casting opportunities and everything like that. How are you going to say? I think I like a lot of those characters. I'm very... Like, what's his name? uh, Burgle Cup, who's like his kind of antagonist in the the village, who's sort of a, a sort of local... Landowner who's trying to steal his farm. Yep. I enjoy the interplay between there. There's his friend Migosh. There's um, well, I noticed Boncard, the like yeah. the warrior. There's all these other characters that are set up that just then don't don't disappear in the movie, and the movie becomes about Willow, a small person in a in a big person's world, right? Yeah, because, I mean, I, I I I mean, I agree, and I think I was I was struck by the presence of Tony Cox, who is a um, actor who was in Willow, he was in Return of the Jedi as well, and he's been in Beetlejuice. But he's—I recognise him from both Bad Santa and Me, Myself, and Iron as he, um, a black black performer, um, black performer with dwarfism. And actually, to see him as part of the group, I thought was really interesting because the film is very white mm-hmm. in lots and lots of ways. And actually, I thought his presence—I wanted more of that kind of, as you said, more of the fellowship because there seemed a real opportunity to, to sort of interrogate and represent yeah. diversity on screen. But actually, that does fall away quite quickly. It becomes this, yeah, exceptional hero's journey narrative um, led by Willow and then ultimately led by Willow and um, Val Kilmer. Yeah, Will- Willow Willow, and, and, yeah, Mad Mardigan kind of team up. He, so he meets Mad Mardigan at this, these, these crossroads. Yep. He doesn't trust him at first uh, and then decides to give um, the, the child, Alora Dan, and uh, this prophesied child... To, um, to, to to the guy, he's in the crossroads, he's about to die, so he frees him in exchange for looking after this child, and then quickly that goes pear-shaped because Mad Gar- Mardigan's uh, vagabond, and I don't really, isn't quite explained, he's sort of having a sleep or something and, and loses the child. But basically, 
without going through it beat by beat, what ends up happening is a sort of new fellowship is formed, isn't it? Which is here, Mad Mardigan, this sort of warrior figure, a bunch of brownies who are sort of really tiny, tiny creatures. Yes. Um, and I, and I, 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 could, I could hear you not laughing at the whimsical brownies uh, throughout the whole movie, Chris, uh, which I kind of shared watching this time, although I must confess I remember finding them hilarious as a child, so uh, um, I can't excuse myself or, or absolve myself from that. I, yeah, they are supposed to be the Timon and Pumbaa of the yeah, um, yeah, 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 of the of yeah. the film, the sort of I don't know spirits, almost you know ter- very tiny, like fairy size, aren't they? So I mean, they're from Scottish folklore. Um, check out Media in the Fantasy, yeah. um, but sort of connected to, to hobgoblins, only supposed to come out of night, uh, come out at night, yes. uh, and thankfully in this film played by Kevin Pollock and <laughs> Rick Overton. Yeah, so and French as well. Yeah, yeah, um, Rule and Frangine, yeah. um, the brownie duo who yeah. serve as comic relief. Yes, that well they serve as relief. Whether that relief is comic is <laughs> is perhaps a, a question for 1988 yeah. audiences as much as 2022. So they, but they kind of do this interesting. They're like the 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 narrators of something like Babe, yes. where they pop up and, and the mice say their little thing and, and pop down again. They kind of get involved in the action, but not really. But I was yeah, really... They're sh- the Gonzo and Rizzo the Rat they of are. Muppet Christmas Absolutely. Um, they... So so they are... They are uh, they are all, they are part of the f- the fictional world of the film. They are also evidence. There's one line I think earlier on, which is magic is the, uh, is the bloodstream of the universe. Yes. So there's lots and lots of magical, fictional, mythological mythological characters embedded within this world. What I like is that Daikinia is a name given to tall people, which seems like the film is taking on the perspective of of. Um, the Nelwyn community because there doesn't seem to be anything that exceptional about being tall. Yes. Is that just their name? It's like, but the borrowers, isn't it? Their, yeah. their version of, of, of... Well, yes, I actually see, so I, I think there is a, a push and pull going on in that I, I completely agree with your points about, you know, the quaintness of the Elwyn village and, and it's definitely othered in terms of the aesthetic. But in terms of the rhetoric of the narrative, you're very much placed within Willow's perspective for the vast majority of the story. This is, uh, as Mendelssohn would say, a portal quest. You know, you learn about the world by Willow learning about the world. So, and, and even just on a shot level, like a lot of shots, I'm reminded particularly of the sequence, there's a sequence where um, uh, they take refuge inside. What, I mean, what even is that kind of, it's sort of like a, it's not a brothel, but it just sort of seems to be some sort of chaotic, drunken, <laughs> but like an inn, sort of a, an inn gone mad kind yeah, of. Yeah. Um, there's a bar brawl scene. Yeah, and there's a bar brawl, yeah, and, and Mad Mardigan's pretending to be a woman because he's having an affair with um, Ugg's wife or whatever his name is. And so there's a whole, yeah, hijinks. But that is very much shot from Willow's perspective. Yes. Uh, and, and and it's doing visually what you're talking about here, which is this, it's not normal. Those That isn't normalised either. The Daikinis aren't normal. It's not like that's that's a position of normalcy in the film. Yeah. They are treated as if they are a, a magical race to experience as in the same well, yeah. in similar ways. That's really interesting. So there's a lot of sequences that take place at low angled level and low, mm-hmm. through low angle perspectives, which I think is you know. The, there are many people that would, you know, there's a distinction between subjectivity, I've said this before, subjectivity, allegiance, and alignment. Um, in this film, you don't often get the subjectivity, i.e. point of view shots from, occasionally you do, but not really. But you are, your allegiance is with, with characters narratively, but your alignment is often through those sorts of perspectives that aren't point of view shots, but seem to mirror a certain, certain perspective or, or focal 
yeah. um, focalized position that, that implies that you are watching the action from the position of the of the Nelwyn community. So there's that as a stylistic practice of alignment or allegiance. But there is also, yeah, these, I suppose, moments where you, you realize that the, 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 the tall people in the film, i.e. the... the I'm thinking of yeah the borrowers and the, the the borrowers thinking about big people. Sure, they're just they're only exceptional because of the size of the borrowers thinking that they are. Do you know what I mean? Like that that they they the big people are exceptional just by virtue of the fact that they are larger and more imposing. And I get the same sort of implication here that there is nothing exceptional about the the tall people in 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 Willow. It's so so they often they are. I suppose in fantasy you go in and you go towards the fantasy. You know, you you have to do something as part of your journey narrative. Here, the journey narrative is just return a small baby to somebody who's taller than me. Yes, and there's nothing and, and except they keep shifting the goal the goalposts to exactly what the quest is, isn't it? Like there's about every twenty minutes, Willow's been Willow is told first to take it to this crossroads. Um, and then that doesn't work out, and then he has to take it uh, to to meet a sorcerer, and then he discovers the sorcerer has been cursed and is actually a small rodent. So yep. that's not going to work out. Then he has to take it to a to a castle, and the castle <coughs> turns out to not be the safe haven that he thought it was going to be. And then finally, they kind of make up their own quest, which is to kind of just try to defeat the queen themselves. Yeah. Right? It's, um, no, it's to keep yeah. a law. It's to keep Alora alive and to keep her away from Queen Bad Morda. Yeah. But there is no there's no Mount Doom. For, no, no, no. Uh, it, is, it is just the baby must be returned to a daikini, a tall person. Yes. I don't know why. What can a tall person offer? Yes. That I don't. I, I, that's what but, I. But do you not think the film is undermining that rhetoric? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's way, nothing like, exceptional. It's nothing exceptional about tall people. So maybe that's maybe that is a good thing. That's a that's part of trying to destabilize where fantasy and magic resides. Sure. Maybe. There's also a, and I think this is a, this is a, it's actually about animation points. So listeners playing Drink Along a fantasy animation, get ready with your points. So there's also a whole thing in the film about kind of practical, there's, there's practical magic, like the higher wind consults the bones and throws acorns that turn things into rock. Yes. There's kind of ethereal magic, like the kinds Queen Bad Morder and the, the sorceress engage within the final act where they're kind of shooting lasers at each other and yeah. firing. The lightsaber battle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there's tricks. Uh, and there's that whole there's a whole rhetoric about tricks and and because Willow says he wants to be a sorcerer at the beginning of the movie. Yes. He's chosen as the one of the people who might be the apprentice of this this wizard, and to so, to demonstrate his wizardry, he puts on a show at the, in the kind of village festival where he does a lot of magic tricks. Right, he makes uh, quite you know as a thing that comes back and again, he makes a pig disappear, but actually he just hides them under the table and doesn't make the pig disappear. Um, and 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 at first that kind of trick. I mean, and there's a number of times in the film where where they say some where characters say to Willow, we have. We haven't, we haven't got time for tricks. This isn't tricks we're dealing with here. We're dealing with real magic here. But ultimately, what saves the day yeah. is Willow's trick. Yeah, well, his inability to... Conv well, the, the earlier... Uh, let's phrase it positively. His ability to trick 
Yeah. Um, Queen Bad Morda. Queen Mao is firing the celestial powers of the evil spirits and all this kind of stuff. And he performs his disappearing pig trick. Yeah. Makes Alora supposedly disappear. The, the, the queen cannot fathom what's happened and ends up kind of basically committing suicide slash dying under her own ritual and that's what saves the day mm. so that's that kind of self-made i don't need to be blessed with magic i can use my wit and ingenuity in the moment to fix things ultimately triumphs over this other stuff and i just think that's very interesting and we also have this kind of practical versus ethereal mm-hmm. we have all this stuff going on in a movie which also has that clash at the level of of visual effects, because that's exactly what's happening in the visual effects, right? We have, how many sequences use VFX? There's, there's, there's I'd say, three things going on the VFX that I spotted. Yeah. There are two sequences. There's the brownie sequence. Where they're captured, and they the sort yeah. of Lilliput, Gulliver's Travels, yeah, yeah, where yeah, they're yeah, tied yeah, yeah. down. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. And there's, there's, there's a lot going on with digital, I'm assuming it's digital back projection. Yeah. Or it's, if it's not, it's very sophisticated rear projection. Yes, it's the same year as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I should say. Yes, so yes, um, yes, yes. There's a, there's a lot of dissolves. Um, there's a lot of. I mean, we, we can talk a little bit about the, the the morphing sequence. But I think. I mean, I had superimpositions, and there seemed to be a sort of form of of, of very sophisticated blue screen that is that is that has to be digitized because it is it's very effective. Um, so I think there's a sort of a bit of a computer-generated imagery, a bit of digital morphing, and a sort of digital optical play with with blue screen, which more recently is is a kind of green screen green screen in the virtual right. backlog. So there seems to be a lot of because um, from what I from what I gather, footage was shot and used as part of the back projection for certain sequences. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the people that are in charge of the, the special effects, so Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett, have this incredible history in, in um, practical effects and are central to ILM's history, okay. central to ILM as as as, as, um, as this vanguard of Hollywood um, first effects imagery, and then essentially creating their own graphic computer computer division in the in the seven, uh, late seventies. So this is out of that, I guess. Um, there's also obviously a bunch of practical effects, but I, from what I can see, in addition to digital morphing, I think it's just very sophisticated, maybe digitally enhanced blue screen. Right. That's what I can. That's okay. what I kind of get Fine. from it. Well, not from the morphing section. No, no, no. There's the more. There's the morphing oh, yeah. as a standalone effect, but in terms of the false perspectives Fine. that they used to create the, the, the brownies. brownies and, yeah, and that yeah. sequence, because there's also this character that sort of appears very ethereal. She's obviously put through a lot of grade, like lighting gradings. Yeah, tink- well, big, big Tinkerbell. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there was a moment where you have a few, yeah, a few little elves and fairies. Gladriel. Gladriel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the any, anything but Willow tour. Sure, this podcast yeah, yeah. is. So yes, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, I won't. I don't have time to to, to go into right. the. So there's sorry, sorry. Just so to, to finish the point I was trying to make. So there's that yeah, character. Yeah. There's Finn Rizel, which which is this character who is a is a, the good sorcerer. The one that will combat Queen Bad Morda. Willow has to find her. He does find her, and she's a little possum character yep. because Queen Bad Morda has turned her into an animal. There's a kind of recurring gag throughout the next hour or so as Willow tries to turn her back and ends up keep turning her... Like a raven at yeah, one point. Yeah, when she's a raven, she's a goat at one point. Yeah. He goes, Willow, you idiot, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, and then um, eventually, he does the spell correct, and we get this... It, digital morph where the character morphs between lots and lots of different animals and eventually morphs into the human bl- being played by Patricia Hayes another 
a uh, fantasy actor of, of considerable now she's in the never ending story um, okay. I wonder if that's part of the nostalgia then all these recurring yeah, I know. you know this, this body of actors and actresses uh, and creative personnel it, it potentially yep yeah. another thing for the for the article whoever's writing it uh, absolutely yes um, so yes I'm just interested that those so those two characters are the ones that are dealt with the most and, and the brownies are the characters that have the most amount of digital baggage yeah. shall we say and yet those are also the three characters who are coded as as this kind of representation of, of ethereal otherworldly magic that ultimately the film doesn't celebrate as much as it does turning making a pig disappear yes um when you said baggage all i could think about was frodo baggage anyway sure. um yes so the film you're absolutely right that there is a register of visual effects and discourses of trickery that are a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more complex. That this is a special effects film, yes, but the the application of the special effects and also the 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 non-application of special effects to I think Willow himself only ever has a wand that sort of glows blue. He himself is not sure celestial. No, not. He is he is a, a a guy who when we first meet him actually. Isn't he kind of doing chores or he's doing sort of farm work or something yep. like that? And, and he's a far- he keeps saying he's a farmer. Yeah. So he's ju- he is quite unquote, just a farmer. Yeah. So his inability, or well, not even an inability, because I agree with you, that's not quite quite the right word, but his inability to sort of access real magic becomes super important. And part of the way that the film demonstrates that is that he is a character who is not often the subject of a series of industrial economic sure. you know, vis- aesthetic strategies. He is not the site of special effects. Just to detour onto that, I don't know how to weigh into this with any kind of sensitivity, but I'm really, I think it's, I'm thinking if I, if I didn't raise it, I'd be being a coward. So I think I'm gonna raise it, which is that there's a really interesting thing compare back to the issue of casting. Yes. Around this kind of casting versus what would be done now and what has been done post 2001. I was just thinking that. Like about about about, you know, basically in a world where we are becoming incredibly aware of the importance of diverse casting and the importance for when a script has the opportunity for diverse voices on screen to have them represented by the communities that they represent off screen. So making sure that we don't cast cisgender actors in transgendered roles and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it, I, I don't know where to go with this, but I think you know where I'm trying to go, which is that, which is better, I guess, to be really crass, casting Elijah Wood as Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings and making him small through digital effects, yeah. or casting Warwick Davis as a magical pixie, even though he's just a man that happens to have a condition? Uh the, the the second the second is the be- but then are we but then are we code are we saying that the problem with that is that obviously there is a difference between a person that suffers from dwarfism and a magical dwarf or a magical this is true. so are we saying essentially by making that casting thing that you're as close as we've got to a god like you know it's 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 spectacularizing in real life a physical condition yes i see what you mean i think the issue it's really difficult no no, no. Um, i think the, the the issue here is i absolutely i absolutely agree that that there is in a world that is in a sort of post 2016 even 2016 world mm-hmm. a post sort of um trump world a lot's happened in terms of identity politics post 2016 in in lots and lots of different ways whether it's to do with kind of challenging ableist narratives to think about decolonization and therefore core periphery models of knowledge production what counts as knowledge who is able to contribute as part of knowledge production um, and 
a, a, not even an increased sensitivity. It's not. It's not an. It's not an increased sensitivity if if the if the problem or the issue has always been there. It's more the 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 means by which marginalised or minority communities are able to voice their concerns or voice their resistance or implement any form of radical change have been. Uh, are, we now have things like social media. We can now orchestrate large scale. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of inclusive projects on on social media and through hashtag activism and so forth. So of course it is it is better to cast um, an actor with dwarfism than sort of digitally take Brad Pitt's face and stick it on. Like there there are interesting yeah. and important distinctions to make. What the real issue is to to make sure that I imagine in 1988 a lot given that the given the authorial practices that we've discussed around the common casting choices. This actor also is in this fantasy film. Yes. What we're really saying is. We need to cast people with dwarfism, not just in fantasy yeah, films. Sure, that's true. That's so that true. so so oh, of course, of course. So that's so, true, yeah. but in 1988, when that's not the case, it means that if if people with dwarfism are only able to access mainstream culture through yes through a fantasy movie yes, that then you have a kind of false equivalence between magic and and, yeah, and and dwarfism well if if for the 30 years before that people with dwarfism had appeared in all kinds of movies that would feel less exceptional yeah, so what yeah. we're really saying is is the, the the film is is part of a context in which there is this false equivalence between um, non-normative identity and fantasy and visual effects is often the bridge between those two things what we really want is is people of of well we want people we want to destabilize Hollywood's highly ableist narratives that in 1988 was still was still there, yes. and the outcome, unfortunately, is that is that we have this kind of equation between non-normative identity and and, and um, uh, non-normative body politics, sure. let's say, and rhetorics and fantasy. I think that's a, I think that I think I, that yeah, what you just said. So I don't think we need to go, dwell on that too much. But again, I think I think it's a really interesting. Certainly, watching it now with standard practices because because you know there's a new Lord of the Rings TV series out right now there is some they're not hobbits they're, they're I can't remember what they're called there's something else but again you know able-bodied actors again this is when you start saying that they hobbits are able-bodied yes they're, they're, they're small magical creatures that don't exist so it's difficult to work all this out but yeah well um, and, and I think that, your point I think your point was was yeah. w w is well made yeah. um, and I think I now want to talk about morphing if we if, if we yeah, yeah, yeah 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 no. so Morphing, come on. Okay. Uh, so there's this big sequence. It's the first digital morph. Um, it's it's also there's also a narrative of morphing that that precedes this moment, right? In that the gag is that he, he right, keeps sorry, being that morphed yeah. into. There's also a bit where a troll morphs into a sort of two-headed dragon. Um, I don't think that's done with VFX, but it's it's, it's morphing happens quite a lot. There's a bit. Go with, throw the acorn into the air, go into the direction the bird is flying. There's a lot of metamorphosis and morphing going on in this film. Yes. Culminating in this standout sequence of VFX. Yeah. Um, talk to me about it. So, um, I think the, I mentioned at the start, the sort of 70s and 80s are, are, are important because Hollywood as an industry is itself morphing. It is moving from practical effects to digital effects. And so whenever I talk to my students and we talk about, you know, there's a reason why this era is an era of metamorphosis. Um, it's because it's sort of the industry is changing let's say um i did want to dwell on, on lucas as as an important though he didn't direct the film ron howard directed the film he's an important figure given the contribution of lucasfilm so lucas first established a computer division at lucasfilm in in 1979 
wanted to go digital, wanted to create sort of digital video, video editing systems, audio systems, digital film printers, all this sort of stuff. There was already a visual and optical f- effects component of ILM, um, obviously, you know, the, the, the spe- uh, special visual effects department who worked on the Star Wars film in the 1977. Um, but ILM at this point is largely practical effects, um, sporadically engage, you know, uh, sporadically investing money into the development of, of digital processes, motion control cameras, digital movements, that sort of stuff. But he was inter- Lucas, Lucas was particularly interested in trying to integrate digital processes. So he's He's part of this story. He's part of this story, and he founds the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Project, which was an attempt, essentially, to seamlessly bring together, to synthesize practical and digital effects traditions, as well as perhaps more kind of loftier ambitions to transform Hollywood cinema more broadly. Um, What he does, and this is where my interest in in Lucasfilm's connection to Pixar lies, he... um, uh, hires Ed Catmull, so Ed, Cat- Ed Catmull, one of the founding fathers of, of Pixar, who was at the time at the University of Utah. Um, he was hired by Lucas as vice president of ILM's new computer graphics division, and then he he sort of brought with him a number of other people from Utah's computer graphics lab um, at the New York Institute of Technology, kind of brought them with him. So the beginning of Pixar is really the beginning of, or sorry, the beginning of ILM's Lucasfilm. You have Lucasfilm, ILM, and then the computer division. Pixar begins there. Pixar begins there. So this is, you know, this is important, you know, because, well, one, I think it's, we, we need to give a more nuanced history than I'm giving here just simply because there are too many great men taking credit for, sure, sure, for sure. C- collaborative efforts across the history of um, arts and culture. However, um, you know, there, the journey that, that Catmull and his contemporaries take they're essentially poached by by Lucasfilm to start up this tech. It means that they are at the vanguard of all these competing digital processes, and they've got money and capital to start, you know, chucking money at, at digital effects production. The outcome is that a lot of the movies of the eighties, I wonder that, that Lucasfilm were involved in, and I'd have to do a bit more research, but kind of a lot of them, I imagine, and the formative contribution of of Lucasfilm to the history of visual effects. I wonder whether a lot of these films are just really interesting places because they're now starting to figure out what we can do with this technology and we've got money to money to do it, really. So there's a couple of... I think 1984 is the young Sherlock Holmes, which um, has a sequence, a sort of digital apparition sequence. A couple of years later, 86, you have Luxo Jr., um, which by that point, Pixar had been spun out into a... You know, into sure. into, in, into an independent. We've, we've also had Tron. What was it? Nineteen eighty two. So we've had Tron eighty two. We've had um, uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. I think it's eighty four, eighty six. Can't remember. Adventures of Andre and Wally B. So um, the Computer Graphics Lab, Lucasfilm making a short little okay. digital film. Uh, Luxo Junior eighty six, and then eighty eight. You've got Willow yeah. and. Well, as you the mentioned, this is like 89, 89 well, and you or... also mentioned Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So a yeah, lot's, yeah, ha- same year, a same lots year. happening in the eighties. Right. Um, so. One, I think one of the most famous sequences is um, Wrath of Khan, so the Genesis sequence, very famous, in, in which I think is 82 as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, I, I, I can't remember. I so uh, that's yeah, an important... I the sequence. Yeah, yeah. So the Wrath of Khan stands as this important collab- collaboration between Hollywood's emergent digital revolution and also how the work of Lucas and ILM are starting to feed into the, the aesthetics of, of, I guess, both science fiction and fantasy or yeah. science fiction as a form of space fantasy. So so maybe another one of the kind of things to think about for the, for the person writing this article. Uh, <laughs> and just to confirm, is that you? <laughs> and, and to confirm one more time, it will not be me. Sure. Uh, about um, 
uh, about these films is that they are an in for people watching them in in the mid mid to late nineties. Yes. Um, it's an interesting mix because they feel modern enough not to be antiquated, and yet have a um, level of like this film has a lot of practical effects in it. Yep. And watching it now, one of the pleasures of it is like you know there's a sequence where an army rides by something simple like that, right? Yeah. An army rides by the crossroads, um, and you just think, God, loads of extras there. You know the bit, the, ba- yeah. the battle to, at the end where they're trying to defeat Bad Morder. There's this army standing on the on the on the on the ground. There's probably only a hundred extras in the shot, but it almost it looks more impressive than the Battle of Helm's Deep because you know they're all standing there. So yeah. there's there's an odd mixture of the old and the new for a generation where they saw Jurassic Park at the cinema, mm-hmm. and so expect a certain ability of visual expression that can only really be achieved from digital mm. that is there in these kind of standout moments there's you know in the in the morph in the you know even just stuff like the, the way bad Morder is killed there's a is it cell animation i don't know but there's like a kind of red oh i think it's kind of just like superimposition like an optical yeah. effect okay, where there's a bit where the cauldron is at, literally animated oh by yeah i think that's that must like, that's a that looks like Harry stop motion yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah, it yeah, there's yeah, a bit yeah. of stop motion when the, there's a bit where a troll gets turned into a yeah. dragon because a spell go misfires. that's harryhausen yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's like all of and so it's, it's all of them together like there's there's in camera there's stop motion there's uh digital morphing, digital morphing yeah, back yeah. projection yeah yeah sort of all sitting there together in like a delicious you know vfx paella oh. <laughs> um, well well exa- well exactly you know. um so you're yeah so you're right that the 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 1980s are this delicious paella <laughs> of different image making technologies that a year later, we get the abyss, which is more digital. You know, it's on the front cut. Co- the image of the, from the abyss is on the front cover of Michelle Pearson's book on on special effects, still in search of wonder. The reason for this is that she argues that the years from ninety nine, sorry, eighty nine to ninety five, are the wonder years of Hollywood VFX production. So this is almost the last. This is the last hurrah. This film is eighty eight, so the last hurrah of. Yes. Bringing all these different technologies together because a year later, off off begins the digital revolution. So yeah, I don't know what I mean. What else is there to say about the movie? I'm, I I I I'm still trying to ponder over your is this a more progressive vision than Tolkien question? I think. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in the New Zealand thing. I think the Lord yeah. of the Rings connection is super important, both what it takes from Lord of the Rings and what it gives. And you've made a few connections with Lord of the Rings, but it seems like this film kind of set a visual template. Yeah, so actually, because the, 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 the connections I've been making are really just the Tolkien source novel. Um, but you're, I, I, Jackson, director kind of, of Lord of the forward Rings, likes some... to present a narrative that he, he tells two stories at once, one story he tells is that basically he wasn't very interested in the in this in these kind of fantasy films and he barely remembers any of them and he didn't want to make anything like that. He's more interested in films like Braveheart and Gladiator. But then he also tells little other stories about how he wanted to make a Harryhausen monster movie at one point he says yeah. uh, and how he read a copy of the Lord of the Rings with Bakshi. I was just going to ask about Bakshi because the, the Lord whole... of the Rings on the front cover. Yeah, yeah. And those kind of to me I'm I'm very suspicious of that because actually I think if you look if you watch Bakshi's Lord of the Rings and if you watch Willow, I'm sorry I'm sorry, Jackson has seen Willow. Like you know, it <laughs> yeah. just has. Like the, the the use of the use of imagery, even some sequences, the way they're rendered, the way they're shot, 
Um, so fantasy, a lot's happening in the, in the 1980s with regards to fantasy. And it seems like what's potentially what's being solidified, or maybe not, given that you said fantasy... I don't think very much is being solidified. Because fantasy falls away until the, the end of I, the I, 90s. I call, I call it in my, in my book, Encounter the Impossible, available in all uh, good bookshops. Alex, is that paperback it's soon? It's paperback right now. Wonderful. Um, uh, I call it the most kind of exciting and dynamic book. decade. Oh, sorry. De- book, <laughs> I, yeah, I call my book an exciting and dynamic book, um, and it is. But I also, within my exciting dynamic book, describe the 1980s as the most exciting yes. dynamic decade of fantasy film production and not because it codifies anything but it just seems to be wildly experimental not necessarily in a narrative sense but in a in a uh in a visual sense you know this is where we get you know the dark crystal we try make we try using puppetry we try using cell animation we try using all these different techniques to render fantasy on screen um or at least high fantasy on screen um and by and willow is sort of the the death nail in it because Willow comes out in 1988. Um, it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't do terribly. It does it does okay? But it cost a lot to make. It was a production. It's a lot of logistics to worry about. And if you look at the movies that did were in the top ten in the 1980s, we have films like Coming to America, oh, yeah. Big, uh, Die Hard, Three Men and a Baby, Cocktail, Beetlejuice, all fantasy movies. All, well, some <laughs> of them yes, like yeah, you know, yeah. some of them yes, fantasy movies. And cost a lot less to make, and made a lot, you know, more money. Um, so I, Willow was sort of like the the Lucas's experiment with high fantasy, seeing if he could do with high fantasy what he'd done with the kind of adventure serial with Indiana Jones, and what he'd done with the sci-fi opera in Star Wars. And it didn't really work on a financial or, or, or critical. Um, sense, yeah. but I think it has had this resurgence since then, and I think those that responded to the Lord of the Rings, one of the kind of cultural reasons for that is that there's this bubbling away zeitgeist during the 1990s of mm. people watching these kind of movies on VHS, and then Lord of the Rings coming out. It's like this is like this is like the, the this is the film that I have been waiting yeah. for for mainstream Hollywood to make. Yeah. Cool. Right. Well, that was Willow. Um, I think we did it justice. It's difficult because uh, it's a movie I've got a lot of emotional baggage surrounding. But yeah. Um, oh, uh, General Kale. Clearly Darth Vader. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah. A combination of Pauline Kale, the film, which is. <laughs> oh which yeah, is that true. is true. That, that is, is true. true. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, I can't Kale. believe you nearly forgot about that. Yeah. Yes. General Kale is named after the famous film critic Pauline Kale because uh, Lucas. Uh, took a dislike to her. And there's also a character whose whose name is a combination of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. So Oh is that? Yeah, yeah. I can't okay, remember which right, the character's fine. name, but that's okay. it. Anyway, you're yes. right, Darth Raider. Well done. that's all I had to say. That's yeah. I just had to say it. That's that I'm now done. Gene Marsh is brilliant. Uh we've talked about Billy Barty. I'm happy. So Chris um, if listeners want to uh, read more about some of the issues we've talked about here, I don't think we've got anything on Willow per se, but we've got plenty on high fantasy. Better stop and motion and puppets. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll also say if anyone wants to, to um, tell anyone when this... When, we'll... when, when you finish that article, whoever you are, yeah. uh, you can submit it at fantasy-animation.org yeah. uh, via the submit tab. Um, but also if you, if you um, watch the new Willow um, sequel series... Uh, drop us a line and write a review. Once, yeah. Once the once the series is, is yes, sort of no, done I'm and dusted. Yes, I'm excited to see. I hadn't thought about that. I'm I'm excited to. I'm, I I will be checking it out with my nostalgia glasses on, but but half. 
to that half rim because I, th I thought, for example, I thought the Dark Crystal prequel series was much more interesting Age than of it either. Age of Resistance? Yeah, really interesting. It's almost a sort of post-truth meditation on Trumpian. It's really good. We should do it sometime. But, so, okay. but to do that, you'd have to watch six hours of, of The Dark Crystal, and I don't think that's ever I, I'd happen. watch six hours of fantasy, and Alex, I'm just not prepared yeah, to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, fine. So, uh, on that note, uh, yeah, fancy-animation.org. That's where you can find all our blogs, posts, and obviously peruse the archive of podcasts. But if you want to download the podcast every week, you just got to subscribe via your favourite podcast subscription service. We're on them all. Uh, and while you're at it, give us a like, a review. Um, every little helps to keep the, the, the visibility going. Um, uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, at FananimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. And you can also use that handle at gmail.com. That's FananimResearch at gmail.com to suggest um, a footnote episode of your choosing um, to see if we can help unpack any of the issues that we, um, we explored today. Otherwise, uh, just like Willow, we have to return to the village now, be reunited with Kaya in a, in a sequence that made me cry for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, Chris is shaking his head, uh, and that means we have to finish. So uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.